Paul is writing, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden from ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those of Laodicea and for all those who have not seen my face to face. That their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of the fullness of understanding, the full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Let's pray. Father, like always, we thank you for the word of God. For without it, we have no idea of who you are. Yes, we would know you exist, but after that, we wouldn't know you personally. We wouldn't know your will. We wouldn't know your power. We wouldn't know your love, your closeness, your concern, your compassion, your mercy, your great desire to see us saved, your great desire to see us changed, your great desire to share in your glory, your great desire for us to know this wonderful mystery and have the full assurance that comes with a proper knowledge of Jesus Christ, Father. We thank you. Breathe upon this text. Bless your people with understanding. Open up our hearts and our minds that we can comprehend with all the saints the mystery of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. As I title this, Suffering for Your Sake. Suffering for Your Sake. And we'll get into the title as we go along. I'll be speaking with these verses as I did last week conceptually. I will not look at it verse by verse, but I will look at the main points that the Apostle Paul is writing to this church about and how they affect our life today, 2,000 years later, as believers. Not much has changed. Some things have changed. Fashion has changed. I'm not wearing the same sandals they wore years ago. My flip-flops are a little more high-tech than they had back then. But the circumstances that surround this church spiritually are the same that surround us today. Nothing's changed. So we'll see how relative it is for me and you today as we go through this. I outlined this sermon uh, four ways. I'm going to speak about Paul's suffering. I will speak about Paul's mission as a servant and his message. Uh, God's mystery, which is Christ. And last, we'll close up with the Colossian safety. And that will bring in our suffering for the safety of others. Uh, We will deal with this text from these four points as we go through. Let me give you a summary. Because of the inroads of certain false teachers and certain false teachings, uh, or teachers, one or the other, this church has been second-guessing their faith. It's a bad thing when people second-guess their faith. 
And that's what's happened. This, this church, at least some of them in this church, are second-guessing their faith, or at least certain points of the faith that they first believed. How is a man right with God? Do we do works, or are we into religion, or do we accept Jesus for everything he's done on the cross for us? And it's his work that counts, and nothing else counts. And from that point on, we change in the image of God, because out of gratitude and the gift of the Holy Spirit. Unfortunately, this church is, these crossroads of false teaching have entered in, and people are starting to embrace this kind of strange teaching, and it's starting to hurt the church with its unity and love, and that's what strange teaching will always do. Strange teaching doesn't bring harmony and unity, it brings disharmony and disunity and a lack of love and a lack of genuine compassion, concern, and mercy one for another, especially a group of people so diversified as a Christian church. And that's what's happening in this church. And Paul is writing to this church to encourage them. To understand the the scriptures, to understand this mystery of Christ, uh, we have a certain confidence that comes with a proper understanding of God. And not uh, not just a confidence to walk around and to feel superior to people. It's a confidence because the Bible teaches that the world we live in is a spiritual, moral, and spiritual teaching wilderness we live in. It's trying to draw us away from God morally. It's trying to draw us away from God uh, doctrinally and theologically to have strange thoughts about God, to have any thought about God. How's that sound? Your thought about God and my thoughts about God, it's all the same, even though we're clashing on two different planes. Proper understanding in this world of God is the difference between heaven and hell. It's the difference. A man asked me once, what's the difference between what you believe and what we believe? I said, do you want the long answer or the short answer? He says, I don't got time to give it a short answer. I said, heaven or hell? He didn't like to hear that. He should have went for the long answer. He might have ended up, well, maybe he will. We'll find out. But it's a confidence that can easily see the destructive nature of bad teaching or false teaching or bad or false understanding of God. That's the confidence Paul wants this church to have. No matter how clever and convincing, as we read in 2.4, these plausible arguments are. People can be very convincing when it comes to any topic. Some people can sell other people the Brooklyn Bridge because they believe you need it. That's how people buy the bridge. They make it sound like you need this product. Me and my wife ordered something online the other day. A TV infomercial. I said, these things are great. Little things you put on the bottom of the chair so it stops scratching up the floors. Well, while we're on there, this guy was good. He almost signed, uh, sold us a timeshare. It went from one thing to another to another. And my wife's like, well, I, you know... I." I'm like, hang up, just. But that's how it is. And that's how it is with God. People can make God sound like this is the God you have to have or else. That's what happened to this Christian church that believed in Christ. Somebody came in, started selling a different kind of God, a, a different type of God. They started getting confused. They weren't sure. Their spiritual equilibrium was thrown off. They lost their balance. They have almost lost their way. But Paul was writing to them to put them back with their focus on all their eggs in one basket. And guess who that is? It's Jesus. Everything we know, everything we need as sinful fallen human beings is found in Christ, nowhere else. 
We don't have to look within ourselves, because the deeper we look within, the worse it gets. If anybody's honest with themselves, the deeper we look within, the worse it is. So this confidence is, can easily see the destructive nature of these teachers, no matter how clever and convincing their arguments might be. And not just that, but also to contend for the true faith. We're called to live in this world to contend for the true faith, to express the faith, and to articulate the faith, until people can have a genuine saving experience with God, not just a belief in God, but their sins can be generally forgiven, they can be in a genuine saving relationship with Christ, and enjoy the living God. To enjoy Him. I've seen people fall in love. I've seen people, what happens when they fall in love, their life changes. I've seen people that have children and their life changes because something greater, something has happened to their life. How much more when God comes into our life? God changes us. We need to contend for the true faith that alone saves and brings people to a genuine Christian experience with the living God, with all the hope, with all the joy, and all the peace that naturally comes from him. Paul's in jail. He's in jail in Rome. He's writing, this church. He's writing to this church. Uh, suffering. Paul's in jail suffering. And not just suffering, but he's rejoicing. This guy's a sick dude. He's rejoicing in his suffering. Now, nobody likes to suffer. I'm not into it. But there's a wrong suffering and there's a right suffering. And when we're suffering for the sake of... Of other people, we should rejoice. We'll be closing with those remarks later. But there is a right suffering. And everybody in this room is probably doing it and not even realizing. Does anybody in this room have a son or a daughter? Then you're suffering. (laughs) Because it's challenging in this life. And you're suffering for their sake. Because you want better for children, don't don't we? And we will suffer for our... Parents understand this text about suffering for the sake of others. He's suffering for Christ. He's rejoicing in it. We'll find out about it. These false teachers, the teachers somehow interpreted Paul's circumstances as a sign that he is wrong and they are right. Good people aren't supposed to go to jail, are they? Right? Well, that's what they're doing. Of course, where there's smoke, there's fire. He's, he's been underhanded. Why would he end up in jail? Surely you can't trust this man. Surely he's been selling you a bill of goods. They finally caught up to him. The law caught up to him. The Jews caught up to him. The Romans caught up to him. They finally put him in jail where he belongs. But as Paul says, you can lock me up, but you can't lock up the gospel. And he can still rejoice because you can't stop God. Can't stop. And this prompts Paul to write as he does, putting his imprisonment, and this is important, in the right theological perspective. People think because we know God, everything in life should go what? Oh, no, no, no. Jesus says, when the world speaks good of you, woe to you. Because if you're going to represent me in this world, guess what Jesus taught us? Pastor John said it already. Jesus says, don't be shocked when the world hates you. Remember, it hated me first. 
It didn't like what I had to say. And when I'm God, guess what? They're not going to like what you have to say. They don't want to hear about moral absolute truth. They don't want to hear about there's only one way. They don't want to hear about repentance. A genuine repentance. Not feeling sorry for actions, but a genuine repentance of heart where a man or a woman takes a look at their life and say, Oh my God, God is not the first place in my life. Myself is first place. And it's out of that place I sin against God. We live in a nation that doesn't want to hear that. They didn't want to hear it 2,000 years ago. People don't want to hear it now. And if they could try to shut us up by putting us in jail, they will. And that could be coming. They do it in other sides of the world. If they can just turn the channel and not be a friend no more, they'll just turn the channel and not be a friend no more. Men don't want to hear what God has to say. But when you know the Lord, and you love the Lord, and you know truth, and you love people, and you want to bring this truth of God's love to people, many times we will end up suffering to one degree or another. So that's in its theological right perspective in relation to God. Just because God is good and God loves us, that doesn't mean tough things aren't going to happen to our life. Let's go to our text. We'll start in verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, his church. There are two truths represented here we need to break down and to dissect a little bit. Suffering for their sake. Even though Paul never saw this church, and this church has never seen Paul, he can say, I'm in jail and I'm suffering for your sake. Paul, if you don't know, this is their spiritual grandfather. A man named Epaphras brought them the gospel because he heard it firsthand from the apostle Paul. Paul is their grandfather. He's suffering for their sake. Nevertheless, his personal suffering over many years as a missionary, this is important, His many sufferings over many years as a missionary to the Gentiles, his beatings, his scourgings, his being flogged, his being whipped. He was stoned and left for dead. He was shipwrecked two times. He was fighting the elements of night and cold and heat of day, of hunger and thirst. He fought. He was man was on a quest to bring the mystery of the gospel to the Gentile world. We know that Paul, we know Paul knew that Christ said he had sheep, not of this fold. And that was the Gentile world. They needed to hear the shepherd's voice. And Paul was commissioned by God specifically to go into the, into the Gentile world, that whole Mediterranean world of 2,000 years ago, and single-handedly carry the message of the mystery of God. That is God's great love for them. And that Christ specifically and personally and intimately died for their sins. That Christ loved them. That is the mystery. Not just the Jewish world. But that Christ loved the whole world. And God gave his son for the whole world. Paul was commissioned purposely. And I might say individually. No other apostle got the call 
to go into the Gentile world. Peter went to the Jew, and Paul went to the Gentile. Single-handedly, he went with contemporaries, yes, but he was the man. He was the one apostle. Signs and wonders followed this man. He preached in the synagogues. He preached in the marketplace. He preached wherever he could to make the mystery of Christ known to these people because he knew that God loved them and that God has commissioned him to go into this Gentile world and to preach. The Gentile world that the devout Jew despised. The Jewish world 2,000 years ago despised the non-Jew. A world Paul went into single-handedly to carry the mystery and a message that the pagan world nor the Jewish community wanted to hear. Nobody wanted to hear the message. They were willing to persecute and even kill those who carried this message of Christ. Pagans didn't want a one God only religion. They were quite happy with their many pantheons of multi-gods, many, many different gods. One for every day of the week. Different flavor every time you wanted one. There was a God for this, and there was a God for that, and there was another God for this. There were goddesses. It was wonderful. They didn't want to hear that there was one God, one Lord, one King of the universe, one will, and that's God's. They don't want to hear that. They liked their many so-called gods. They felt safety in numbers. The thought of one God and absolute loyalty to him was threatening to idolatrous world. Very threatening. It still is today. You're telling me Jesus is the only way? You're telling me I have to be a disciple? You're telling me I have to obey Christ? That's the only way? Very threatening to people. People who like sin... It's very threatening, but people who long for forgiveness, it's liberating, invigorating, emancipating, changing from the inside out. For those who are tired of carrying a heavy burden of a guilty conscience of their sin and of their shame and of their guilt, it's emancipating. That's why the Bible says that Christ has rescued us from the power of darkness. The Jews went still further. The thought that the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, has opened himself up to all people groups, seemingly free of charge, just by faith in Jesus, whom Paul preached, without any adherence to Moses or the law or circumcision. In other words, the Jew didn't want to hear, you can go to heaven and become a child of Abraham without becoming a Jew. They hated that message. They hated when Christ preached it, and they hated when the apostles preached it. But nonetheless, it needed to be preached, as Paul says, Woe to me if I do not preach. They were the privileged race. They were the apple of God's eyes. They were Israel. They were the chosen son of God. Not the barbarians. Without God in the world. Pagans. Hedonists. All of a sudden, God loves them like he loves us. And all I have to do is believe in this Jesus who hung on a cross and died as a criminal. No more circumcision. No more Sabbath keeping. No more law keeping. No more temple. Be gone with such a man. Who would preach such heresy? This is blasphemous. 
That's the world Paul went to preach in. And that is where Paul is. He's in prison with the real possibility of dying for bringing this gospel message, this mystery that was hidden in the Old Testament, that even the Old Testament prophets, Moses didn't understand it, Isaiah didn't understand it, Ezekiel didn't understand it, Jeremiah and David, collectively they could have put their minds together, they would have scratched their heads and said, I don't know. That the Christ will love both Jew and Gentile. So Paul can say without hesitation, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. I rejoice to bring this message of loving reconciliation. You never heard about it. You've been worshiping false gods. You've been deceived century after century after century. You're living in darkness without any hope. And I know that God loves you. And I don't care how much I have to suffer for the sake of the elect. I'm going to rejoice in my suffering because I know within that message, God saves sinners. He rejoiced, genuinely rejoiced, not because he was in prison. He genuinely rejoiced because of the message that was hidden in the Old Testament was now being proclaimed from the rooftops to a world that had no idea there was a living God. And that he's a forgiving and merciful living God. And that he came here personally in his son Christ. He rejoiced. He rejoiced in his reconciliation. And he rejoiced in suffering for the sake of of others. The second part is a little more awkward to interpret. Paul says, In my flesh, I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, his church. A little awkward. First, there's nothing insufficient in Christ's atonement that needs to be supplemented with anything we can do. It's not like Christ didn't suffer a perfect suffering in Gethsemane or on the cross when he said it is finished. And Father, Father, how come you have deserted me? There's nothing insufficient with that. We can't beat ourselves and, and do penance to be saved. Christ did it all. This is Paul's way of simply saying where the master is, so is his servant. For the student is not greater than the teacher. They persecuted you, Jesus said. They persecuted me, they'll persecute you. Christ suffered. He suffered to birth the church. He suffered to pay for the sins and redeem the church. And now Paul suffered to grow the church. Christ suffered for the message. Paul died carrying the message. Listen to what Paul says, or the book of Acts says, in Acts 9, 1 to 5. But Saul, that was the apostle Paul before conversion, so, but Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, for many people in this room, if you don't know, that before Paul was St. Paul, he murdered Christians. This is his conversion. 
But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest. And he asked him for letters to the synagogues of Damascus, so that, he, so that if he found any belonging to the Christian way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now he went along his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? He said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. You see, Paul knew firsthand that any attack, any murderous threat against the disciples of the Lord, against his body, against his church, he knew personally it's attack against Jesus Christ. And guess who else knows it? Jesus Christ knows it. When we're persecuted for the name of Christ, and for the cause of Christ, and for the message of Christ, understand something. It's not you they're persecuting. It's not you they're disagreeing with. It's not you they don't like. They don't like God. They don't like Him. They don't like a loving, merciful, forgiving, patient, caring, heavenly Father. As a Christian now, it's almost incomprehensible to me how you cannot follow Christ. God is so good, man. But people still fight God. Paul's mission and message about the mystery is twofold. First, to proclaim the message that was hidden before the ages. I like the way Paul says this. Hidden before the ages. What is this? message that was hitting before the ages that's in Hebrew that means before time began before time began God's work of redemption is not reactionary like oh my goodness what am I going to do Adam and Eve sinned and oh, oh, oh let me go rush around and put something together real fast I'll slap a plan together in some kind of knee jerk reaction knee jerk reactions don't work Before the foundations of the world, God had a plan to redeem sinful men. But it was a mystery. How does it make sense? I have an ark with eight people going through a storm. Everybody else perishes. I have Joseph going down to to Egypt, being sold as a slave. But yet he comes back two million strong by a deliverer named Moses. I have a nation of Israel that's less than all the other nations in the world, but yet they conquered Canaan. They weren't even a warring people. They had no experience at fighting. But yet they win. And all along it's pointing to God redeeming the whole world. That's the mystery. That one man was going to be raised out of the nation of Israel. He was going to be the king of kings. He's going to be the Lord of lords. He's going to be God's only begotten son. Yes, he will be the Christ, God's Messiah. To bring salvation and light to the Gentiles. So that the promise of Abraham would come to pass. That through you, Abraham, all the nations of the world will be blessed. This mystery to all the Old Testament saints, even the apostles themselves, they couldn't figure it out. 
They couldn't figure out. They thought that Jesus was here. Oh, look, all these miracles. He's walking on water. He's feeding 15,000 people with a couple of loaves and a couple of fish. Surely the political leader is here. They had no idea of what the kingdom of God is all about. It's about the human heart. It's about salvation first. They had no idea. And it's all for all humanity, not just for this Jewish nation. And what is this mystery? I like the way he sums it up here. Which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. What an expression of Christ's work. What Paul sums up succinctly in just a few words, the whole gospel. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you, in your heart, in your mind, in your soul, spirit to spirit, soul to soul, face to face, heart to heart. Christ in you, amongst you. That's what it all is. And it's the hope of glory. It's all about our future existence with God. A new society. Being made perfect as Christ himself is perfect. This is our hope. This is the hope that Christ paid for. This is the hope that the Holy Spirit witnesses to our heart. He's the down payment. He's the guarantee that there's a glorious hope of being perfect with God one day. That's what drives us. That's what compels us to move on day in and day out. Because we know we're going to see God face to face. And one day this journey in this world will be over. And we will be right with God. And we will stand before God unashamed and perfect. That is our glorious inheritance. That's the hope of the glory which is Christ in you. It's not just about today. Yes, I have peace today. Yes, I can have joy and truth. In tribulations. Yes, I can rejoice in sufferings, but the hope of the Spirit of God is pointing in a direction that's upward, that's beyond this world. And that's what the world needs. You can only have that in Christ. The second part of his calling, of his commission, as the first part was to bring understanding of the mystery. Which is Christ. There is no mystery now. Please let me tell you. All the mystery is gone. There's no more mystery. It used to be a mystery. Now it's revealed in Christ. Now all God wants us to have is a full understanding of the riches of his glory. His second part was not just to preach, but to build up the saints that believed. He was to preach to those who never heard. And when those who heard believed, now he went into phase two and it was to build them up in their faith. That they would become mature believers. That they would be rock solid in their understanding of this mystery. And not be persuaded by these arguments that you need to supplement your faith with doing things and trying harder. Paul didn't want them to be beguiled away into spiritual no man's land by charlatans. It produces no love for Christ. And Paul labored. He toiled. It means in the Greek, worked hard. He grew weary. It troubled him. He suffered fatigue. That Christ would grow in them. That they would be mature. 
I think about a parent that loves their child. You suffer, you labor to the point of fatigue so that a son or a daughter would grow up mature and sound of good character to enjoy life at its fullest. That's what a parent does. And it wasn't just his aim or his quest that he labored and he toiled. It was his calling. It was his calling. Not anybody can do this. Don't let any man, don't let any woman take it upon themselves to try to carry this message. You'll never make it. Ever. Never. Make it. Don't ever think you can just pick up a Bible and start telling people about Jesus. You'll fall apart. Never think you can pastor people broken in this world, broken with sin in a broken world, without being called by God to do it. We'd never make it. Paul labored. It wasn't just his aim, it was his calling. God chose him specifically for this work, and he knew it. And did all he could in his power to accomplish it, because he knew God loved these people. And when he did all he could do, and he labored, and he toiled, sleepless nights and fatigue, he could say with all authority, all this energy of God powerfully works within me. You see, understand something. We don't realize God is working in our midst until it's all over and you're drained and you're ruined and you feel like you're just, you're out there. You've just, you've given all yourself. That's when God does his great work. If we are self-sufficient and independent and to think by any way it's us that are going to carry the kingdom. If you think possibly we can change sinners into saints. If you think you can save your children. If you think you can save your spouse. If you can think you can save your father or your mother. Forget about it. It has to be the work of the Lord. We labor and carry the message. But the work is the Lord. One man sows, another man waters. But God gives the increase. It's a spiritual work. It's a spiritual dynamic. All we do is carry the message. And we toil. And we feel the pain. And we feel the suffering. We feel the rejection. But God is in control. And he always is. And Paul knew it. And the fourth thing that this text speaks about is this church's safety. That's why Paul was laboring. They already believed They already believed. You see, an evangelist will come into town, and it's a gift, it's a call from God, and they'll preach, and they'll preach loud, they'll preach strong, and they'll preach long, and people will get saved. But then they leave. See, they're not spiritual parents. They're not called to be spiritual parents. It's like someone having children, biologically, but not fathering them. Not nurturing them. Not caring for them. You see, the Apostle Paul loved them. He cared for them. He was willing to suffer long, suffer hard, to labor, and to toil. He genuinely cared for this church. And this leads to application. The Colossian safety, we mentioned it briefly before. 
about not being carried away into spiritual no man's land. This, this generally concerned Paul. Just to believe and be saved wasn't good enough for Paul. He wanted these people to be resolute on the inside, to stand up against all the challenges of Satan and his demons and false teaching and the immorality and the hedonism, licentiousness, and stand up in this moral spiritual wilderness and say, no, I'm a disciple of Christ. I won't be led away by the passions of the flesh and I won't be led away by false teaching. But that takes time. Building up belief is, is hard work. It's harder than salvation. Did you know that? It's harder to build somebody up than someone to be saved. Christ did all the hard work on the cross. We preach a message, someone hears it, they believe it. But to grow and to change and have the renewing of your mind takes a lot of time, a lot of energy, a lot of effort. And that's the local church's job. That's what we do. Salvation is paid by Christ and the believer and the sinner believes simply by faith he is saved. Salvation comes immediately into the heart. Salvation doesn't take time. Salvation is a light that goes off and someone says, once I was blind, but now I... That's salvation. Once I was blind, but now I see. But growth is different. Renewing the mind of all sorts of spiritual nonsense takes time. It takes effort. It takes labor. It takes prayer and takes energy. And that's when people start to falter. He says here that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all, to reach all the riches of the fullness of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. The riches of all fu- and the full assurance of understanding. We live today in a culture that prizes comfort. Prize is ease. It's the highest goal of people in our culture. Ease and comfort. Suffering and toil. and it's, We don't like to hear that. We want it quick. We want it fast. We want it now. We want it big and we want it more. Labor, struggle, toil, suffering is something to be avoided at any cost. People will labor not to suffer. People will fight to keep it easy. They'll go out of their way not to do something. But safety, it's different. Growing up in Christ is different. Always remember this. The safety and security for one always comes at the cost of another. Always. You might not realize it right now. We have a good life. A nice weekend in the, uh, out in the Long Island. Enjoyed myself. Without realizing it, that someone else suffered for this. Soldiers. Memorial Day. Firemen. Police. First responders. Parents. Teachers. Crossing guards. Coaches. We can go on and on and on and on. What brings stability and safety? is someone's, It's costing somebody something. Somebody's up late at night. Someone's doing something to bring us and keep us safe. We, we take it for granted. We don't even think about it. But somebody's doing the job. It costs. Because of all the manifold dangers that are everywhere in this world. How much more spiritually? How many people really enjoy going to church? How many people really enjoy loving the Lord? 
It cost someone before you even sat in this room. It cost people. It cost people laying down their life for Christ. It cost people not just financially. It cost people time, expense, their very life. Everything in their life they give over for the sake of others. Paul says it this way. I die daily so that the life of Christ can come to you. You think it's easy? You think it's just just throw out a shingle? No. Hard work. Hard toil over many prolonged years before you even sat down to hear the gospel. Somebody died for you. Somebody laid it all down that you could hear the truth and be saved and enjoy it. Someone did it. We want our children to grow up strong. We won't want our children to go out into this world and be easily swayed by wrong people. We send our children off to high school and to colleges and we're hoping and praying that they don't come home contaminated by drug addiction and and immorality and all sorts of other things. We we hope and we pray and we labor to this end that once they're out of the house we can say, praise God, they know the truth. Parents lose their life for you young parents. Your life is not your own anymore. You will labor, you will toil, and you will struggle, and you'll rejoice in it for the safety and the welfare of your child. The same thing with Christianity. The Bible teaches that we live in a world that's a haven of satanic teaching and lies that come from schools, White House, churches, friends, it's everywhere. God wants us to be strong in the faith, period. To be ready to give an articulate answer of the hope that we have. Not tossed to and fro by every wind and wave of doctrine. Not tossed to and fro by our emotions. Not no knee-jerk reaction to temptation. Temptation comes and we crumble because there's no self-control. I, I, I'm overwhelmed. I can't do it. No, that's not good enough. You can't be a husband. You can't be a wife. You can't be a child. You can't go out into this world without self-control. You gotta be in control of our emotions. We have to be in control of temptations. We gotta be, and we find our strength in Christ, not in ourselves. That's the church's job. To build up Christians. Not to be like children. Vulnerable. Susceptible. They become prey to the predator. That's what we labor for in this church. With all the strength that God has given us, we labor that God's children in this church would grow up to be mature, sound in the faith, resolute in times of temptation and false teaching that try to lead them away from the simplicity of the gospel. That you can stand up. Instead of being swayed, you can sway others with the truth. Because the truth is so deep within you. You can see it clear and you can articulate the gospel message. That's our hope. Let me close with this. Paul did it almost single-handedly. And I say almost single-handedly. He had a lot of help. But the local church, we can rejoice as Paul did collectively in our sufferings. Because everybody's suffering to one degree or another. Life is hard. Life is hard as a Christian in this world. The world calls us every day to compromise our faith. Every day. Compromise. Compromise. A little bit of this, a little more of that. No one's looking. Look, 
touch, taste, go for it. It's constantly in our face. You can't watch a commercial without trying to be seduced by the world. Compromise, compromise, compromise. And we suffer. And just like that exhortation that came from Stephanie at worship, someone else has gone that way before us. And we need to lean on one another. That is the church. We toil and we labor together so that we grow in the unity and the bond of peace and love for one another. That is our job collectively. It's no one man's job. One sows, one waters, but God gives the increase. Bless you.